0: well, good evening. evening. It's a joy to be with you once again tonight. If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, where we will be reading in a moment from Exodus 2, verse 23, to Exodus 3, verse 15. It should be on page 54 in your pew Bible. If you're like me, you often struggle to understand why God does not act in more obvious or substantial ways in our lives. This struggle can show up in all sorts of different ways. Maybe you find yourself watching the news with more and more horror as people's lives and homes are ruined by the effects of a fallen world. Why doesn't God act decisively in mercy or in judgment on the sin that is present in our lives? Maybe it's more personal. You've been fighting with the same sin for years, but you see little change. You wonder why God doesn't just step in and miraculously remove the temptation from you. Or perhaps it's not a sin, but just the daily pains of life. Loss of loved ones, heartache, physical pain, loss of job. If our God is who he promises he is, then why does he sometimes feel so distant? Well, as I've studied this passage in preparation for tonight, I truly believe that the story of the burning bush is God's answer to these questions. Certainly, it isn't the only answer that the Bible gives, but it is one of the most comforting passages in Scripture for Christians who are weary of the daily effects of a fallen world. I trust that God will use this, his word, to comfort and encourage our souls tonight. Given the length of the passage, I won't ask you to stand as I read it, but I do encourage you to give your whole attention to it. This is the word of our God. Exodus 2, beginning in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have sung tonight, you truly are a God above and beyond all of our praising. We learn this morning that you have given us the gift of your word. Please bless us as we come this evening to study it, open our eyes to the truth and wonder of your revelation to Moses in this passage, and help us to leave tonight refreshed and joyful at the God that has revealed himself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To say things were difficult for the Israelites would be quite the understatement. During the reign of Joseph, the people of God had known prosperity in Egypt. Even after Joseph's death, the Egyptians had treated them well. But soon, a new king of Egypt had ascended the throne, a king who had no love for the Israelites. And so the chosen people of God fell from being represented at the highest level of government to being a desolate tribe of slaves. They were afflicted, forced into hard labor, and Pharaoh even commanded that their male children were to be put to death to control their population. Now, the people of Israel knew God's promises. They had been told by their parents the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew how God had rescued his people time and time again out of danger, war, and treachery. But year by year slipped by, and no help came, no deliverance. Surely some of the Israelites began to doubt the goodness of God. Where was he? Why had he not come to their aid? It appeared that after all those wonderful promises, after his covenants with Adam, with Noah, and with Abraham, God had abandoned his people. In other words, the people of Israel were not so different from ourselves. Sometimes when we read our Bibles, we begin to forget that these were real men and women with real faith, but also with real struggles. But perhaps more dangerously, we can also begin to forget that we have a real God with real compassion, real power, and real steadfast love. Just like us, the people of Israel were in constant danger of forgetting God's character. Well, in our passage tonight, we see God's answer to this problem. If you want the short version of my message tonight, here it is. The story of the burning bush... Reveals God's character to the people of Israel. It teaches and reminds us who He is. We will look together at this revelation of God's character under three headings. First, our God is omniscient. We see that primarily in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Second, our God is sovereign. We will see this primarily in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And finally, our God is Yahweh. And we'll explore what that name means when we get to it in chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. So God is omniscient, he is sovereign, and he is Yahweh. First, see with me that our God is omniscient. Omniscience is a theological term which means simply all-knowing. Everything that has happened is happening now and will happen, is known to God. He is aware of every thought, word, and deed. Psalm 33 describes God's omniscience this way. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Notice how God's omniscience is tied to his role as our creator. He who fashions man's heart necessarily knows and observes all of mankind's deeds. And we see this observation played out in our passage tonight, don't we? Look especially at chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Here we have four different verbs used to describe God's awareness of the situation. Clearly, the main point of the variety of terms is to give us a sense of God's all encompassing knowledge of worldly affairs. God was not just vaguely aware of what was going on, He saw every strike of a whip, He saw every murder of a Hebrew baby. But the terms used to describe God are not unintentional. Each one reveals a different aspect of God's omniscience. Notice first that he hears the prayers of the people of Israel. In a moment, we will see how God is sovereign over this whole period in Israel's history, but notice that his sovereignty does not make our prayers useless or prevent him from truly answering them. Even if it escapes our ability to fully understand, this passage clearly upholds both God's sovereignty and the importance of prayer. Next, God remembers his covenant with the patriarchs. Why does the cry of the Israelites bring God's covenant to his mind, so to speak? Well, almost certainly it is because God explicitly foretold the enslavement and deliverance of the Israelites when he made his covenant with Abraham. You heard read a few moments ago the story of God passing between the animals and promising to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. Listen again to these words that God says as he makes that covenant in Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So even as God hears and responds to the prayers of his people, we are reminded right away that he is firmly and sovereignly in control of the situation, and he is in no way caught by surprise. God knows exactly what is happening to his people. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. Finally, we are told that God sees the children of Israel and God knows. The wording seems intentionally vague to impress on us the completeness of God's knowledge. God is calling attention to the fact that he knows. He knows all. This is reinforced by the fact that the narrative suddenly switches to the story of Moses tending Jethro's flock as if to say that everything that can be said about God's knowledge has been said. God knows, period. And this knowledge of God will be of immense importance in this story of the burning bush that is about to be told. Well, if this abrupt ending does not draw enough attention to God's omniscience, notice how these same sensory verbs are used several more times in our passage. In verse 4, God sees Moses turn aside. In verse 7, God again sees, hears, and knows the affliction of the Israelites. So also in verse 9 and verse 16. Although he didn't have these words yet, Moses could have summarized this section of Exodus by quoting Psalm 94. There, the psalmist describes the thought pattern of the wicked in words strikingly applicable to the Egyptian taskmasters. Listen to these words and notice what the wicked man thinks of God's omniscience and how different God is from their delusion. Psalm 94, beginning in verse five. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? What a simple but effective argument, if God has made you and me to be aware of the world around us, how much more aware is he of what happens in our world? Our God, then, is omniscient. So when you and I are heartbroken and we bring our most desperate requests to God in prayer, he hears us. What wonderful news for needy Christians. Well, the wonderful news continues. As we look at the next section of our text, we see that not only does God hear, but he also sovereignly acts. We have already touched on this several times, Since it is difficult to separate God's omniscience from his sovereignty. Because God knows, he sovereignly acts. And because he sovereignly acts, he knows what will happen. Notice with me how completely in control God is throughout our entire passage. We will look at five different sovereign acts of God. First, and briefly, because we've already noted it, God is in control of Israel's captivity. The Egyptians thought they were in control of the Israelites, but they were simply following the exact plan that God had revealed to Abraham hundreds of years ago. As surely as God would allow his people to be enslaved by the Egyptians, he would also deliver them by the hand of Moses. In other words, God's covenant promises to Abraham inevitably came true. The Israelites were enslaved and now they will be saved. God's second action in our text is to guide Moses to Mount Horeb. As we mentioned before, there is an abrupt change at the beginning of chapter 3 as we are reintroduced to Moses. The last time we heard about Moses was earlier in chapter 2, when he was exiled to Midian and had settled down to live with Jethro the priest and to marry his daughter Zipporah. Now, in chapter 3, we see that Moses has built a life in Midian and is working as a shepherd under his father-in-law, Jethro. As far as we know, this extraordinary moment in redemptive history started as an ordinary day for Moses. He woke up, got ready, and began tending to his flock. But in this ordinary duty of life, God guides Moses to Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai. Looking ahead to verse 12, we see that God promises to bring the Israelites again to this mountain. His promise is fulfilled in Exodus 19 when the Israelites encamp at Mount Sinai. So, God guides Moses and later all of Israel to this mountain. Third, God appears to Moses. We read that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire Out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. There are two questions we have to address in this verse Who appears to Moses and what is going on with this bush? To the first question, there are two common theories. One theory is that an angelic messenger from God appears to Moses and relates God's message to him. The other theory is that God himself, in a pre-incarnate form, appears to Moses out of the bush. While we can't do the whole debate justice here, I think the text supports the view that the angel of the Lord is God himself. Why do I say that? Because the angel of the Lord and God are referred to interchangeably in our passage. Notice how the angel of the Lord is the one who appears in the bush in verse 2, But then it is God himself who calls to Moses out of the bush in verse 4. In verse 6, Moses is afraid to look at not the angel of the Lord, but God himself. And in verse 8, the Lord says that he has come down to deliver the Israelites. I think the most natural interpretation of this is that the angel of the Lord is God. Regardless of how this is understood, it is clear that God is the one who is acting. God guides Moses to the burning bush, and it is God's words that Moses hears. Now we must ask ourselves, what is the purpose of this burning bush? There are two textually supported points that we want to see here. First, and this will come as no surprise to you, the bush is in fact burning. Fire is used throughout Exodus and the Old Testament to symbolize the radical holiness of God. Just as our own human bodies cannot bear to be touched by fire, so sin cannot exist in the presence of God. It must be eradicated. We see support for this in verses 5 and 6, where Moses is commanded to remove his sandals because the ground is holy And Moses is also so overcome by God's presence that he hides his face. This is especially striking when we consider that this section that we are looking at focuses on God's sovereignty. While God is actively coming in deliverance to save his people, Moses is completely unable to act on his own. He cannot even look at the burning bush. So the fire in the bush symbolizes God's perfect holiness, his presence. But notice also that the bush is not consumed by the flame. Again, this reveals something to us. The miracle of wood being burned but not destroyed symbolizes how God, even though he is perfectly holy, chooses to dwell with his people. His holiness is in no way diminished. The flame still burns. But in this passage, the holy God draws near to Moses by grace. Not only that, God draws near to the whole people of Israel. In verse 8, we learn that God has come down to deliver his people from the hands of the Egyptians. The protection of the bush, then, is a symbol of God's grace to his people. And the symbol of the burning bush as a whole is God's method of revealing himself to Moses. God's fourth action is in verse 10, where we see him send Moses as an ambassador to Pharaoh. Even though Moses will act as a human savior, it is God himself who will save his people. Notice that Moses isn't even on board with God's plan, he doubts himself. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, God's answer to this question in verse 12 reveals his fifth and final sovereign action in our passage tonight. I will be with you. What a wonderful answer to Moses' fears. You see, Moses is focused on his own lack of talent or his own fear of confronting Pharaoh. Who am I, he asks. Moses doesn't think that he has the gifts or maybe the talents to act as God's messenger. Well, rather than getting angry with Moses for missing the point, or dismissing Moses as a waste of time, or even giving Moses a pep talk, God does something very unexpected. He effectively agrees with Moses. Moses is right that he cannot persuade Pharaoh on his own. So God gives Moses the most incredible gift. God promises to be with Moses, to be Moses's strength, Moses's confidence, Moses's Lord. And this shocking closeness of God to his people brings us to our final point. Our God is Yahweh. We've already seen important revelations of God in this passage, but in this climactic section of verses 13 to 15, God reveals his very character, who he is, and he is astounding. Look with me first at verse 13, where we get Moses' question. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Why is Moses asking this question in the first place? If you had been an Israelite living in Egypt, and Moses had come to you saying that he had a message from God, would your first question have been, well, what is God's name? But think about how names are used throughout scripture. Think of Abraham, whose name changes in Genesis 17 from Abram. His name used to mean exalted father, but God changes it to mean father of a multitude right after promising Abraham that he will, in fact, become the father of a multitude. Or think of Jacob, the deceptive younger brother of Esau. He is given a name that means something like he cheats to match his deceptive character. Again, after Jacob wrestles with God, his name changes to Israel, which means he strives with God. One last example is Exodus thirty-four fourteen, which mirrors our text tonight by giving God a name that is at the same time a description of who he is. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. So really, Moses' question seems to be, in what way shall I describe the God who has sent me? In other words, Moses desires to know more about God if he is going to be sent by God as his messenger. One commentator remarks how audacious this request is. Is Moses really in the position to ask God to reveal his divine character to Moses? But the miraculous thing is that God chooses to answer his question. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. In English, this phrase can come across perhaps as a flippant reply to Moses, sort of like saying, well, I'm me, Moses. Stop asking silly questions. But if you understand the meaning behind Moses' question, then it allows you to grasp how amazing this statement is. God is not dismissing Moses' question about his name, rather, he is answering Moses' question about his character. Another example might be when God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is describing a definite part of his character. So what is it that God describes about himself? I am who I am. God declares that he is the source of all being. Unlike us, God does not receive his existence from someone else. If God did, then he might have said, I am what I was made to be. We also learn here that God does not have a beginning. If God did, then He would have said, I am what I once was not. God also does not have an end. If He did, then He might have said, I am what I will not be. No, God is eternal, He is timeless, He is unchangeable, His nature is utterly unique. God is I am. After verse 14, Exodus 3 could have ended. What more did Moses need? He had been given a command by this infinite God of unimaginable splendor. The I Am had sent Moses, so Moses had to go. But a defining element of God's interactions with mankind is his gracious kindness towards us. He does not give us what we deserve, nor does he give us only what is barely necessary. He goes above and beyond anything we could imagine. And so verse 15 follows verse 14. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. A quick note on the wordplay involved in this passage. And your English Bible probably has footnotes explaining this. The Hebrew word translated as I am in your Bible is pronounced ehyeh. And it means I am or I will be. God takes this verb and he turns it into a name. So eh Eheyeh, repeated three times in verse 14, becomes the name Yahweh in verse 15. And you can kind of hear the similarity between the two words. Most English Bible translations follow the custom of translating the name Yahweh as the Lord with all capital letters. So why do I say that it's important that verse 15 follow verse 14? because it reinforces God's unimaginable greatness, and it couples it with his unimaginable graciousness. In other words, the God who reveals himself as the I am of verse 14 is the same God who came down and dealt graciously with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His character is one of incomprehensible grandeur, yes, but his character is also one that loves the unlovable and has mercy on the merciless. And you can see how beautifully these two aspects of God's nature complement one another. The God who covenanted with the patriarchs is the same God who appears now to Moses, and he will remain the same throughout all generations. Yahweh is his name forever. And so covenant faithfulness is his character forever. Slow down with me and think about this for a moment. Because if God is who he says he is in this passage, then his unchanging nature does not stop in Exodus 3. It extends to this very moment, to this very room. Think about the sin you have been struggling with for years, Think about the chronic pain you experience. Think about that persistent worry that constantly resurfaces and sometimes threatens to engulf you. As you've heard preached here at Grace many times, the Bible does not simply tell us to have a stiff upper lip and ignore our suffering. Our suffering is a serious problem. The Bible offers a serious answer. And the answer is this, if you are a believer, then you have been given a promise of deliverance from the living God. He has said that he will never leave you nor forsake you, and he proved it on the cross. His faithfulness will last forever. In the words of Hebrews, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This means that even when we do not understand why God is allowing us to suffer and to struggle, the believer can say with confidence God knows my struggles, God hears my prayers, God acts for my good, and God will always be faithful to me. Henry Law sums it up beautifully when he says in his commentary, Believer, drink hourly of this cup of joy. Do not suffer Satan to infuse a poisonous doubt. Christ loved you largely when in the counsels of eternity he received you into his heart. He loved you truly when in the fullness of time he took upon himself your curse. He loved you tenderly when he showed you by his spirit His hands and his feet, and whispered to you that you were his. He loves you faithfully while he ceases not to intercede on your behalf and to scatter blessings on your person and your soul. He will love you intensely in heaven when you are manifested as his purchase and crowned as his bride. To each question, has he loved, does he love? and will he love, the one reply is, I am who I am. Well, as beautiful as this is for the believer to meditate on, and it is beautiful, it is also a sober warning to the unbeliever. Can this all-seeing and holy God of Exodus 3 allow your sin to go unpunished? Of course not. The only way that the problem of sin can be resolved is by judgment. In the case of the Egyptians, it was resolved by their death in the Red Sea. If you are not trusting in Christ, you await a worse punishment. Peter warns us in the New Testament that though God exhibits patience for a time to draw men and women to Christ, he will come suddenly in judgment. And all the evil and wrong that he has seen and heard since the dawn of time will be dealt with forever. So do not delay. Take advantage of the patience of God towards you and run to him. He is near to the brokenhearted. Well, as we close, I want to return to a verse that we previously looked at. I already told you how the Hebrew word ehiyah can mean I am or I will be. Exodus 3, interestingly, is the first chapter in the Bible where this particular form of the verb is used. More interestingly still, the word is not first used in verse 14. It is actually first used in verse 12. But I will be with you. The English translation that you have is excellent, but it cannot entirely capture the wordplay going on here. An alternate translation might read, But the I am is with you. Well, why do I mention this? Because throughout the rest of scripture, this verb form is almost always used in the same way that it is used in verse 12. It introduces a promise from God. These promises that appear throughout scripture have a depth and a weight added to them when we realize that they are all hearkening back to Exodus 3 when we see that all these promises have their root in the ever-living, ever-faithful God who reveals himself to us. As we have seen tonight, his promises are an outflowing of his character. Listen, for instance, to God's promise to Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Or God's promise to Solomon. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him. Or perhaps most striking of all, God's promise of an everlasting covenant in Jeremiah 32. Hear these words. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul." how is it that this God of glory we have been studying tonight could make such a promise to sinners? How could he rejoice in doing us good when we were quite literally hell-bent on doing him evil? Well, perhaps you've heard something of this answer before. The unexpected answer arrived to a young woman named Mary in the first century A.D. It arrived in the form of a child called Emmanuel, God with us. The answer arrived to the Jews in the form of a man who made incredible claims and performed incredible acts. It appeared when he opened his mouth and said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The answer to our sin and shame came not with glory and honor, but with the humility of the cross. But death on a cross could not prevent God from keeping his covenant promises. No, rather, it was the instrument that he used to fulfill his promises. And when Christ burst forth from death's grip, his name became the name at which every knee shall bow, which in the words of Exodus 3 will be remembered throughout all generations. And Christ's death and his resurrection became the grounds of our Christian hope. So that in the book of Revelation, we hear these wonderful words, which echo so closely the words of Exodus three fourteen. Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these marvelous promises that you have made to us in your word thank you that you do not change that you remain faithful even when we are faithless thank you that you hear our prayers that you know our suffering and that you care for us and you will restore us to christ in heaven please help us to hold on to that hope to be reminded today and every day of your faithfulness to us and help us to rest and to rejoice in your love we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would please.